Welcome to the Haber Show. This week's guest is Ethan Sherwood Strauss from The Athletic, one of my pals who wrote the book everyone in the NBA is talking about. It's called The Victory Machine. It tells the story of the rise and fall of the Warriors dynasty. That's what the book cover says, but I read it yesterday, front to back. Felt really proud of that. The last time I read a book front to back in one sitting was, I can't remember. But uh, the story is way bigger than that pulls back the curtain on how the NBA business works from agents to shoe conglomerates to billionaire owners to PowerPoint presentations gone awry. We'll talk about what makes Kevin Durant tick, how social media fits into all this, and what Ethan was thinking when Andre Iguodala made him apologize for what he wrote about KD and why Ethan didn't apologize after all. Plus, I asked Ethan, who scored like a gazillion on his verbal SAT, to define about 20 words he used in the book that I did not understand. So that was fun too. So thank you, Ethan, for making me smarter. Without further ado, here is Ethan Strauss. It seems like your book should have been called The Misery Machine. The Misery Machine. That sounds like a Radio Ethan thing. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted The Victory Machine. I got The Misery Machine. (laughs) Should it be called The Misery Machine? Well, I think the NBA is still a gloriously entertaining place in it, but it just seems like getting to the top of that mountain doesn't result in what you think it might, or at least whatever it results in is ephemeral. And... It gives you a great memory, but the memory doesn't doesn't keep keep going. So, yeah, I think there is something to that. And, hey, is it just me saying this? Is it just my hypothesis? I don't think so. It's Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, a guy who has a vested interest in putting as happy a face on the product as is possible for you to buy the product. He's in public saying that the superstars right now are miserable, deeply miserable. He's saying this. This has become a thing. It's pretty interesting to me. Well, so our careers intertwined. We kind of began at the same point, right? Like back in 2010, around there. When, when did you become like full-time getting paychecks for being an NBA writer? Oh, I think well after you. Um, well, okay. Hmm, I'm thinking about it. You're talking about like salary. You're talking about, hey, kid, here's a here's a freelance. <laughs> here's here's a, a freelance check. Here's your media pass. Um, <laughs> here's, here's your media pass because those are two different things. That I, you know, became a beat writer for ESPN covering the Warriors in 2014. But before that, I had worked for Bleacher Report for about a year. And I had done a bunch of freelance articles for for ESPN. I think the BR thing was back in, you know, maybe 2012. And bumming around with the media pass probably since 2010. So you had a really, you know, fresh look at the Warriors. You hadn't covered the team for the Monte Ellis era, essentially. All I remember of Monte was he would come in in pregame and he would eat a turkey sandwich with his headphones on and talk to nobody. And then a lot of the time just leave without talking to anybody. I, I just saw almost no interaction at all with his teammates and I do have this memory of he hit his head pretty hard in a game and David Lee as the media was interviewing him and he was the main guy there was no podium back then he was in front of a banner as Monte was leaving he said 
you okay, Monte? You know, you, you, you good? And, and Monte just shot him the dirtiest look because I, I think that they, they really had no human interaction at all. And maybe it was a sense of David Lee was trying to uh, put on a presentation of um, caring for the media. I don't know, but it was just a dirty look and he just left. I just, he, he was never talking to anybody. So that's the tail end of the Monte experience that I got. So you weren't the video, you didn't have an iPhone camera, the one where he's look, sitting at the desk, Monte? and typing out on the keyboard that wasn't you <laughs> that wasn't me but that that's an incredible that's an incredible snippet i mean monte has a lot of incredible snippets whether it's dipping his hands in wax or saying monte have it all um you know monte uh monte certainly generated some content back then but i did not enjoy i really enjoyed watching him when he was playing alongside baron davis i thought that was the perfect role for him to just knife in off the ball into the lane I think once it became his team um, that was one of those experiences where I'm a big believer in how there's sometimes a cumulative experience that's different from an individual experience so I think for a lot of NBA fans they would see the Warriors maybe once or twice on national TV back then and Monte was fun and he was throwing it up there and maybe he was going to go for 35 and he had some burst and that was that was very enjoyable but the cumulative experience of watching Monte Ellis pound the ball into the floorboards and take mid-range jumper after mid-range jumper, I would say was not so fun. And it's, it's, it's a difference, you know, there's a difference in terms of, um, I think watching an NBA game or two in person and having all the stimuli blast of the arena. Um, I think it's, it's definitely an experience that's meant for somebody who's there one or two nights a year. You know, it's just a big, blast of energy right at your face versus being a beat writer and doing it for i don't know a hundred games like that's a very different experience and how you and how you engage with it so yeah Yeah. i'm I'm digressing yeah well i remember for several times in this book you bring up anecdotes that you texted me amongst the others in our group chat that we've had for years and every time that you texted these moments I was like, how are you going to fit this into the book? Because they, they seem to be these disparate uh, stories that didn't seem to have like a place in a classic uh, story about a team. And then when you read this book and this is, hey, my buddy's going to plug your book because we're buddies. So this is like, this is what I found fo- most fascinating about this book is you tell the story of the NBA and this misery index, this misery that Adam Silver talks about at the Sloan conference with Bill Simmons, what he is describing in that moment, you kind of peel back the layers of that NBA world that can be so, so much of a pressure cooker. Uh, and you tell it through this Warriors team. So what I found, Ethan, is that this story, I didn't really think it was about the Warriors rise and fall so much as it was an NBA rise and or an NBA team's rise and fall because you you peel back the layers on so many different facets of the NBA world. So the corporate culture, the the culture of billionaires, uh, the NBA Nike Under Armour shoe conglomerate, as you as you wrote, what was it? I have it right here in my notes here. Everyone in the NBA is working for the sneaker conglomerates, whether they know it or not. 
And some of these pieces of the NBA world are essential. When you're inside of the NBA world, you kind of know about it, but you don't put it into words. You kind of feel it. The, the influence of sneakers, the influence of agents, the influence of Instagram and Twitter and coaches and billionaires. And you kind of synthesize that all into one big story. And so if you're coming into this thinking you're going to learn everything there is to know about like one through 15 on the Warriors roster when they won no. championships, that's not what it is. No, no, there's no uh, uh, there, there, there's no extended section on. Well, now I'm thinking like, what's a good warrior to name that people would not want an extended section on. I guess they're all interesting, but there's no Ian Clark chapter is, is right. what I will say. Um, and there's no yeah. Steph chapter. Yeah, there's Steph is a it's Steph is a business chapter in a way with yes. the sneaker wars. But yeah, you got it. You understand it. You interpreted the book correctly. Um, it's about the NBA and the crazy Darwinian crucible it is combined with to be fancy about it. The panopticon effect of just feeling so observed on social media yes. and getting so much feedback and how that's made it quite difficult to form the bonds you would want to form as teammates and to also get the fulfillment that you would want to get from your success. Um, that's effectively what the book is about. It's that, that's it right there. And when I covered, so when I got into the NBA covering it full time, I was 25, 2010, 2010 season. And I'm just eyes wide open. I am so new to this world. I'm who is Carlos Arroyo? Why is he starting for LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, and Chris Bosh? Remember those years with Joel Anthony and mm. Carlos Arroyo and Zajunas Ogowskis? That was the team that I came in on. And I I didn't quite have my ear to the street, so to speak, about agents um, or billionaires or anything like that. I was just kind of blown away by um, – Everything seemed so, so clean on the surface, but behind closed doors, it was such, it was madness, especially when LeBron James left, you started to hear, and and we talked about this for the book, you started to hear all these stories about how messy it was behind the scenes. And what really distills that down is the fact that after the 2014 finals, almost every player retired from that heat team. Yeah. They were done. They were done. I mean, LeBron James left. Ray Allen retired. Richard Lewis retired. Uh, James Jones was holding on by a thread. Michael Beasley went back to China. Uh, Shane Battier retired. All of these players got minutes in a finals series, and they just about hung up their NBA careers. And I think that's what is the the thread through your story is how much energy – how much just stress it takes to win at the highest level in today's NBA. Yeah, it it all becomes too much. And winning is a bit of a lie. I'll say a bit of a lie because it's not completely a lie. It does come with rewards and it does come with respect and it does come with lifelong memories. But it just doesn't do the trick that I think a lot of people think it might do. And then, I mean, the way I would put it is, uh, okay, the difference between no championships And a championship is huge. It's a huge difference between never having won it and winning one. Difference between one and two, okay, maybe that's that's significant. Uh, Two and three, I mean, is there a big difference between three and four? At a certain point, it kind of becomes uh, law of diminishing returns. (laughs) The law of diminishing returns, right there. But you bring up at the end uh, a great anecdote about Charles Barkley, how he kind of signifies this. We like to rag on Charles Barkley for not winning a championship, but in most interactions with Charles Barkley, everyone would say he's the happiest dude in the world. 
Yeah. Yeah, he never learned what a lie it was to have won a championship. So maybe he wishes he won one. And maybe he'd be the same guy even if he did. But there is something funny to that, that uh, Charles Barkley is the life of the party and has a great time and is winning retirement. You know, he is dominating his retirement. He's putting up 30 and 20 every night in retirement. But some of these guys who have won, they just don't they don't have that. And maybe maybe we're almost in a way, or maybe I'm almost in a way confusing the causation here because maybe Charles Barkley didn't have whatever it would have taken to win a championship mm. because, because he was enjoying, you know, he was enjoying his life in many ways and having that work life balance even back then. So, uh, but wh- whatever the reason, whatever the, whatever the reason for it, it's clear that Charles Barkley's fine never having won a championship as a person. And that some of these guys who have won a championship are miserable. I do feel for Kevin Durant, who you call the open book that nobody could read, because he's, as you point out in the book, and I think um, Lee Jenkins points out in the story that he wrote for Sports Illustrated, is that he's a searcher, that he's searching for something, and he's always been searching for something, and he might not be able to find it with the Warriors, and ultimately he wins a couple championships, wins the finals MVPs, and it just kind of shows you that the grass isn't always greener on the other side, and I think the take home for a lot of people reading this book, it's not really about the warriors. It's also just about life and the pursuit of happiness and filling your cup. As you wrote about Steve Kerr uh, and pop, what his advice to Steve Kerr was filling your cup, having to take away your, you know, separating yourself from the NBA world is the only way you can survive. And, the idea that Kevin Durant uh, came to the Warriors to find fulfillment and your experience was that I just, I don't know if you'll find it in the Warriors. Uh, And the reason why he left was very much the reason why he came is just, he's trying to search for something. That's exactly true. And I think the simplest way to put it when people ask me why he left and it's not really a why, but it's just describes the process. At a certain point, the Warriors were getting more, from Kevin Durant than Kevin Durant was getting from the Warriors. And that was that dynamic where they were supposed to be the thing that made him, that gave him credibility in a way he hadn't had before. And if you look back to those heat teams that you covered, you could understand it from Kevin Durant's perspective. You really could. You know, the LeBron goes to the heat, bunch of people mad at him. It's a big story. He loses. Everybody makes fun of him. The next season, He beats Kevin Durant's Thunder in the 2012 finals. Uh, Kevin Durant was great in that series. Nobody cares. Nobody cares that Durant had over 30 points a game. I think maybe on 55% shooting. Don't quote me on that. But great offensive series for KD. Nobody cares. Wow. And we all celebrate LeBron. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the thing. It's it's, sorry. It's a tendency. So much KD apologism. So nobody cares. And we all hail LeBron as the number one player. And yeah, he formed a super team, but whatever. He's the best player. It's the best team. Hooray, LeBron. Kevin Durant forms his own super team and marches into the finals, a historic march through the playoffs and pummels the Cavs, outplays LeBron. LeBron can't guard him. he, He was better than LeBron in that series. What's the end result? Well, here's your finals MVP, KD, and we don't really care. You joined a 73-win team. LeBron, still the best player in the league. And then run it back the next season, same result. I, I think that was something that was aggravating, and he wondered 
I think understandably, why are the rules different for me? Now, we understand why the rules were different. We understand the difference between joining a 73-win team and what LeBron did. But superficially, it would seem that it's stacked against KD reputationally. And the thing that did the trick for LeBron is not doing the trick for me. So he goes to the Warriors when they're a 73-win team. And that seemed like to me, from a PR perspective, it was already done. Like even if he won a championship, the the bar was so high in terms of expectations uh, that you, it's it's almost a no win situation. If he wins, it's because he joined uh, an, an, a seventy three win team. If App- you- apparently, apparently, it was. I mean, going sixteen and one in the playoffs, coming back from a from a significant injury. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Getting finals MVP, hitting the big shot. You know, it really he did check every box of what you would have needed to do, and it still did not matter reputationally. People were not any more convinced of Kevin Durant's quality as a basketball player uh, than before that all happened. I mean, it's it's kind of amazing when you look back on it. So when when do you think it started to break? When you your relationship with Kevin Durant because you guys were best friends uh, and everyone knows <laughs> that. When did it start? When did Ethan Strauss start to see this situation? Go, huh? This guy and I just don't get along as well as I hoped. Oh, I was never, uh, to be clear, I was never best friends with, with <laughs> KD, but he was always a very, he was a fun guy to talk to in a lot of circumstances. I, I had a conversation with them uh, in the last season that he should, it's ironic that he slams so many sports pundits and sports talk people because he would have a great drive time radio show. He's got a ton of takes on the league. And he's a very, uh, you know, he's, he's a very, uh, he's a basketball scholar. He notices a lot of things. And so uh, he was always a fun guy to talk to and to get off the record takes and everything um, and very open as the open book nobody can read. But with him, it just comes down to like with any player, if you write things about them, they don't like they tend not to like you. And is it even personal because they just don't like what you're saying? That's just kind of how it is. And uh, I think it, it started to really fray. I mean, there were moments before, but I talked about how the Warriors offense seemed to be operating in a way to uh, make him happy um, and to not be so Steph centric. And when I wrote that, um, I knew he was really mad about it. Um, I had heard through a mutual a mutual friend. And uh, as it's in the book, uh, we went into a shoot around in Sacramento. And you can, Tom, you can speak to how unusual this is, because I think for maybe a lot of readers, they, they might not know how the whole setup is with media and how it generally works. Um, but as detailed in the book, he just immediately leaves his shoot, his shooting session, leaves the ball bouncing, storms up to me in front of the other media, starts going off on me about it and ends with yelling. You don't know what makes me happy um, with his voice sort of trembling. Uh, Todd, would you can you can you back me up? This is an unusual yes. circumstance. <laughs> Yes, especially when you're doing it in front of other media members who are yes. going to use that as material going forward too. So it's not like it's not like you're not going to have that in your coffers, right? You're not going to yeah. have that as material to like write about the player going forward. Yeah, and I don't want to be too defensive because when you when you write a book and or an article or anything and people argue about it, there's this idea that 
is this is this exaggerating or is this a vendetta or any of that kind of thing? I mean, I look at it as I mean, just ask the other 20 people who are there. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. So, I mean, yeah, so that, that was probably a friction point and that was probably a turning point in the dynamic. And I don't think from that point on that we uh, we ever saw eye to eye and not just because he's seven feet tall. <laughs> when you look at your your book, there's eight chapters. There's uh, the big deal, which is about Joe Lacob stealing the Warriors away from Larry Ellison. Number two is is Light Years. I guess you would say it's the rise of the Warriors. Then was Currism real? Uh, it's about Steve Kerr, kind of a profile on him and his philosophies. Then there's the sneaker wars, Nike versus Under Armour, proxy wars of of KD and LeBron versus Steph. Then there's Kevin and me about you and Kevin, obviously Kevin Durant. Then there's my best the, friend. Yep, the <laughs> final March after April, which is kind of just a synopsis of what went wrong in the 2019 playoffs. Um, the King of I don't know a profile on Bob Myers, the GM, and then finally the Maximum Chaos chapter about the 2019 offseason this summer, the crazy summer of 2020 or 2019. Which chapter of those was your favorite to write? Oh wow, um, favorite to write, uh, probably. I mean, I just love the sneaker stuff. I'm, I'm really into the sneaker stuff. I, I, I love that. I, I don't have a good explanation of why, um, but I th- think that was probably here's why. It's probably my favorite. Why? Because why? you flip the paradigm in this story that we're all just watching a bunch of Nike versus Under Armour versus Reebok versus Puma versus Adidas <laughs> players. <laughs> what suckers we are! <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would not consider myself a sneakerhead, but this section was fascinating to me because you flip the paradigm of what the NBA is and and you write about how the NBA teams are only vessels for these superstars. Well, and to me, Steph Curry made a very interesting choice that it's not even it's not even talked about. It's not even brought up. But he crushed Under Armour by accepting Kevin Durant onto the Warriors. <laughs> Absolutely crushed them. Like beyond they, they, they've never recovered from that. And maybe he didn't know that's what was happening. Um, but that was a decision made for the good of the team and for winning a certain kind of sacrifice that I think really hurt Steph's wallet. Now, we're not going to weep tears for Steph Curry, who has a $200 million contract, but he had a big stake, equity stake in Under Armour. Um, And by no longer being in the MVP conversation and being the guy on a team, by joining the recruitment effort, was the last guy to join it out there in the Hamptons, uh, it dealt a significant blow to a multi-billion dollar multinational. I mean, that's what happened. And I quote Ethan Strauss in The Victory Machine, in accepting Durant, Curry may have sacrificed sports immortality in exchange for life. What did you mean by that? I meant that the spotlight was starting to burn, and it seemed like being the guy had its benefits, obviously, but it seemed exhausting. And being the, the face of the league, all the TV shows, all the bookings, all the crazy fans. I remember what it was like. It was it was like they were the Beatles. It was just it was people jumping out of the bushes at practices and Sorry tailing him. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I know. Well, you got to you know, you got to get a one on one any way you can get it. <laughs> but he tailing him for 30 miles and stalking and everything else. And I think it was different for him because some of these guys 
this was in the whole plan. If you're Kevin Durant, if you're LeBron James, the idea is that I'm going to be the face of the league. And this has been a possibility, a realistic possibility ever since they were teenagers. But nobody ever thought Steph Curry was going to be the face of the NBA. And he didn't even think that. He thought he was going to be damn good. He thought he was going to make the NBA. I don't think that this idea of number one player, one of the most famous athletes on earth, I don't think that was there. And because of that, because there was never an expectation of having it, I think it was probably easier for him to let it go. Yeah, and and I just don't know if – I don't want to this, – this is going to come off. I don't know if Stephen Curry has so much dynamic personality to him that every year we can learn something new about him and, yeah. and the fame – I don't know if he's not that Michael Jordan. We were able to learn so much about him uh, that intrigued us, but the idea of Stephen Curry, there's not enough drama there for people to latch onto. Like LeBron James had so much going on, whether it's trying to save the Cavs and going to the Miami Heat and being the the chosen one out of you know when he was 17 years old. There's so much there. There's so much material there, and for Stephen Curry. There's, you know, a chapter about him as part of this sneaker war, but there isn't a chapter about Stephen Curry. And I felt like, you know, some people reading this book might want, you know, 300 words on Stephen Curry and the rock. You can probably find other books out there for that. Yeah, this, there's there's one there's one called Golden by Marcus Thompson that is <laughs> yes. uh, a fairly complete biography, uh, biography of Steph Curry. Um, and, you know, that was something where I thought about I thought about it. I thought in doing the book how player centric do I want it to be? And I thought to myself, okay, well, a lot of that is what, what we've all been doing for years. We're very player centric when it comes to covering the NBA, because that's typically what fans are into, especially in the aftermath of a game. And for a lot of these guys, just so much about them is already known. Um, and God, everything for that Warriors team, every little morsel, at a time was gobbled up. I remember knowing that they were a big deal when Clay Thompson said that his favorite book was Harry Potter and it became a big news story that Clay Thompson liked literally, literally the most popular book on planet Earth. You know, they're just like us. And so because so much of that story had already been told, I just wanted to do something that was a little more behind the scenes machinations of the NBA who are the puppeteers? What's going on? I don't necessarily want to tell you more about Steph Curry, but let's talk a little bit about Lynn Merritt. That 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 was the idea behind it. Also, just because I had to compartmentalize. Um, I didn't want to rob Peter to pay Paul. I didn't want to steal from what might make for a good uh, athletic article when I'm covering the playoffs and put it in the book. So there was that as well. Yeah, because I remember you always just sharing these little details, these little morsels. Uh, in the chat and being like, man, this is such a big moment. And uh, I think I'm going to save it for the book. And it would be about like sneakers. It'd be about like Mm -hmm. basketball shoes. And I'm like, how is this going to work? And then obviously you have all these elements in the book that these little vignettes of uh, Lynn Merritt at, after a game, after the finals, after winning um, and, and these little anecdotes of, you know, that really put into you know, some sort of imagery of, of the players in the NBA. And by players, I don't mean capital P, like like NBA yeah, and, and to, to be clear to your listeners, we should say Lynn Mayer is a Nike executive uh, whose station rose alongside LeBron. He, he signed LeBron to Nike. He won that sneaker war. 
and then accrued more and more and more power. But he's he's a major guy at Nike. He's one of these he's one of these guys. I'm 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 fans of these these guys who are the most powerful NBA people fans haven't heard of, whether that's whether that's Lynn Merritt. Whether that's Warren Legary, creator of Summer League and agent to about a third of the coaches in the NBA. I'm into that stuff. And so, yeah, that's what Lynn Merritt does. All right. Let's take a quick break to hear about a podcast that should be in your rotation. Hey, this is Logan Murdoch from the Run and Plays podcast. Check out the latest episode as the one and only Sabrina Unescu joined the show. She talked about the upcoming NBA draft, her impact on the basketball world, and our relationships with Steph Curry and Kobe Bryant. I mean, the mentorship was awesome. Uh, we got to become really, really close friends. I mean, we talked uh, a few times a week. We talked really about everything, whether it was basketball, his family, um, my basketball. It Really, the conversation took us uh, wherever wherever we really wanted. Make sure to download and subscribe to the Run and Plays podcast for free on your podcast subscriber. Now, back to the conversation. This other section, which I, I should write a book about this, is Twitter, social media's influence on the NBA. It quotes you. You're, you're quoted in that one. I had yeah. a big story, a big profile about how NBA players and teams are trying to wean themselves off Twitter and they can't seem to get off. And that's kind of the central character in your story is Kevin Durant's nemesis is uh, what people think about him. Uh, and yeah. you can't, if you're Michael Jordan in 1994, you can probably turn off that faucet, right? Yeah. Like you, you just don't have to turn on the TV or read the paper. Whereas now these superstars have with one flick of the thumb can read thousands of Twitter messages, fans, haters, mostly haters. Uh, and it's tox- It's intoxicating and it's also toxic, right? So there's this yes, idea yeah. of – It's It's got the elements of an addiction with uh, with the, all the highs and the lows. And, and for Kevin Durant, it seemed like uh, a high that he just could not quit. And there's some players in the NBA who are addicted to social media – but they also have family and kids and things to soak up a lot of their time. And I, and I get the sense that Kevin Durant um, is just a hooper. He's just yeah. a basketball savant. He's a basketball junkie. And so he ha- can't help himself but to pipe in the reactions in the basketball Twitter sphere. Yeah, he he can't help himself. It is this big focus. It's something that you would often see him hunched over the phone after games, not talking to anybody, uh, just looking at it. And you know, famously is just DMing just random fans all the time, arguing with them. And um, it doesn't seem to lead to happiness. Maybe it's more of a symptom than the disease itself. But I, I don't know if it's just a symptom because it seems – I mean, I think it was Chuck Klosterman who said, and I'm paraphrasing, but I like the rule that your happiness is inversely correlated with the amount of time you spend thinking about how people are thinking about you. Yeah. And he he was saying it in discussing having kids and how that's the great thing about having kids. It's one of the great things about having kids is that there's something that's just relieving to your soul about spending more time thinking about somebody else and getting out of this headspace of you are the universe, you know, that that has an appeal. And I think a lot of um, technology and a lot of our corporations cater to that narcissism, but it is not the road to happiness, not by a long shot. And so he doesn't, he doesn't have those other things to focus on. um, And he is addicted 
to the war of what other people think about him, which then ironically makes people think less of him than they should probably think, uh, considering what an all-time great basketball player he is, because that's how we that's how we function as human beings. If we can tell that you're secure and that you don't need our love, then we will give you our, our love. If we can tell that you are an open wound and that you badly need our love, then we're going to withhold it. And that's just how we are. This Steve Curry anecdote of like, hey, you know, I thought about having Kevin Durant have all these people in on Twitter, the real life people behind Twitter in his mentions come in to a practice or a shoot around or a meeting and walk in and meet Kevin Durant and essentially say the things that he said on Twitter. And he thought that that might have been a nice cure or at least a treatment for the disease of always wanting to get that response from people who are paying attention to the Twitter mentions. Do you think that would have worked? I don't think it would have worked, but I would have loved to have seen it tried. And he might still try it just with the team in general, because these fans, of course, if Steve Kerr reached out to them and he's not even telling them why and says, hey, we're doing this random giveaway, we're doing this thing just come to a practice um and then they confronted them like an interrogation i mean it would be incredible (laughs) i would love to see that and but that's that's how a coach thinks it's okay what how how do we what, what do i do how do i gamify this how do i change the mindset of the players um i don't think it would have been a cure but i wish he had done it and i hope he does it in the future you know the first time i heard that what 2019 finals I think it was at a shoot around and Steve Kerr is holding court yeah. and he's just talking to like me, Brian Winhurst was there, Rachel Nichols was there and he's talking about that idea, the idea of like having real people behind these Twitter accounts talking to players. And I remember just sitting there and being like, Steve Kerr's openly talking about this with media in the mm. finals, Ethan. Yeah. They're yeah. at the peak of this this competition, and yet Steve Kerr is he is an open book, right? Like he is so mm. open about his ideas, about his players, about just you know the whole Warriors organization. The irony of like the Knicks never letting players or, or, or never letting media talk to players or talking to executives or coaches and being so on top of their their subjects is that like the Warriors are the opposite. They yeah. they're like. Hey, uh, you can do a better Raymond Ritter person than I can. But like, if you need Stephen Curry, he's going to go try every effort to get Stephen Curry or Kevin Durant or Steve Kerr for you, mm-hmm. which is yeah. not the common thing. Well, and-, and I think, and I think to, uh, I mean, Raymond Ritter is probably not too happy with me this week, uh, Warriors PR guy. But you know, credit to Raymond Ritter. I think being so available was part of how this did become. America's team in a way and then eventually maybe America's most hated and most beloved team but part of it's real I mean this Los Angeles Clippers situation it feels like they could win a championship and there'll be five people at the parade if there if there was a playoffs hypothetically wait 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 wait. can we talk about this the the Clippers when you describe Steve Ballmer Mm. in the book (laughs) I realized something what isn't the mascot just him 
Yeah, yeah, he's got that bald eagle esque. Uh, I mean, I guess it's a condor, but I think of him more like a like a bald eagle. Uh, yeah, it, you're it, describing him in the, the book, and I'm like, wait, <laughs> isn't that their mascot? Did they did they subliminally make their mascot like a? Uh, oh my god, it's brilliant. It, it, that seems like something a CEO would do, but I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember the timeline of when the mascot became that that condor. Um, so, but it's plausible. I like this theory. Yeah, the the theory is that the Condor, uh, which is the Clippers mascot that they recently introduced, is actually just a cartoonish Steve Ballmer. I love it. I'm into it. Um, yeah, I, but to go back to the Clippers, uh, run by the Condor, um, they've got this, this incredible team. And they're trying to get in on the Laker turf, which is tough because the Lakers are the Lakers and they have LeBron and they just don't do a lot of media outreach. And I think that's the way Kawhi wants it. And okay, maybe you say it's all about the winning. It's all about the winning, but there's something beyond the winning, which is a cultural impact, which is 30 for 30s or whatever 30 for 30 will be 15 years from now, where we all relive what it was like to watch you. And, you know, I don't think that the Fab Five didn't win, but they, they meant something to people. And if you're not if you're not open, if you're completely closed off, uh, yeah, you could win. But it's almost like the tree falling in the forest uh, with nobody around it. Did it make I mean, a sound? It's the Spurs. It's the Spurs, but the Spurs did it. The Spurs did it for long enough that eventually they had their own cultural imprint. I think some of these teams think that they can act like the Spurs, not win like the Spurs for twenty years, and it will matter to people. And it and it just doesn't. You you have what happened with the Hawks, where it's here today, gone tomorrow. Nobody cares. Something I was struck by in, in the book: uh, how so much went wrong for it to go right. Did you mean yeah. to hit on those themes of just like how they kind of stumbled into a lot of things? I mean, I guess that's just life, but you make your own luck to a certain extent, but you do need luck. <laughs> I mean, there, there, there's no the, the, the bottom line is, is that some core competence of an organization is required, I think, for the success to happen. But that does not mean that competence is not you can't equate it with being psychic. Right. And you can't it's equate it with having the, you, you the can't equate it with having God, Chris Bosch. Uh, LeBron James and Dwayne Wade to team up, team up, but they also signed Mike Bibby and started him throughout the playoffs. Yeah, wow. Um, you know, before he was incredibly buff. Um, yeah, I. I so, so there's 2011. Yeah. Bob Myers offers Stephen Curry and Clay Thompson to New Orleans for Chris Paul. Then there's also the Steph Curry to Milwaukee Bucks for Andrew Bogut deal that was discussed, and the medicals were sent over there. Then there's the 2013. Was it 2013? I don't know. Uh, Warriors discussing trading Clay to Minnesota for Kevin Love. Like all of those deals you yeah. presented in the book. And by the way, there are more scenarios than that, but y y you want to nail these things down before putting them all in the book. But that's those are just let's just say those are the ones we know about. But yeah. So which which one in there do you think is the most aggregatable? <laughs> I feel like Clay and Steph nearly being traded is uh, that's pretty that's a pretty big road fork. Yeah, I mean, and and to Oops, be I, fair, are you listening. Oops, I, are you listening? To be, fa to be fair, though, to be fair, I don't think many people would have thought it was a bad idea at the time. You know, well, people didn't know the ankle issues for Steph. Was, yeah, was the deal. ankle issues and and Clay. He was like a like an NBA baby. You know, we didn't know anything about what he would be. So, um, but these are just cited to indicate that there was no 
um, they, there was just they, – they, they didn't know what they had. They didn't know what they had. They knew they needed to clean up their act and not be what they were under Chris Cohan. But they didn't know that they already had the makings of a super team when they had the makings of a super team. All right. Well, let's power rank the aggregate, the aggregated bulls. Um, okay. The number one aggregatable I'm going to posit to you is – uh, KD thinking that Steph stands in Twitter, uh, like that, that drove him away from the Warriors. Is it weird that I didn't necessarily know that that would be so aggregatable? Okay. I mean, it's obvious Wait, in right, retrospect. So you're going to lower that on the power rankings. Here's, no, I no, no, no. It obviously, it obviously is. It's just, I didn't, I, you, you don't totally know. You don't totally know what people are going to be into. And you start to also lose track of what you know versus what everybody knows. I mean, that's something that also happens where uh, I think like, yeah, of course, Steph's status made KD insecure. I mean, everybody, everybody knows that. And then I think, well, I mean, do they? <laughs> well, I think the whole idea of him going into people. And I remember when we did a live show uh, and I think it was Andy Lou was about to like divulge, like read open the DMs that he's gotten over the years. I don't know if it was Andy Lou, but it, whoever it was, and I was like, I don't know, we should be pulling out you know DMs from from NBA players quite yet. So uh, it's it's out there. Uh, item number two: What Draymond yelled at Steve Kerr at halftime? Oh yeah, again, that's, that's another thing. Uh, I mean, that you can't you can't print it. <laughs> uh, number three. Which assistant NBA assistant coach threatened to fight you? <laughs> I think that one's known. That's not very aggregatable. Uh, number four, that KD was meddling in the Brooklyn deal. Uh, I feel like that's a little bit known. I feel like we know about that. I, 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 I would knock that down the rankings. I, I would knock it down a bit. What else? What else are you feeling like when you're logging into Twitter and you're like, oh, what detail is going to be roasting me now? Uh, well, here's the thing. I, I'm trying to learn something from my own book and I try not to interface with too much of it. And I see that there's a conversation about it. You know, I saw somebody was saying that Jay Williams was, uh, was saying something about you, blah, da, 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 da. And then I, I had that immediate impulse to find out what it was, <laughs> but I just haven't, I haven't investigated it. I haven't tracked it down because you can't do anything. You can't really do anything about it you know if you on this podcast took some criticism uh that i was getting and introduced it to me then yeah you know we would we would have a conversation about it and i would give my defense whatever but chasing it down and being this kind of just hunting it just seems to not really work out so you know i try to i I try to see if there are things that are said about it that are good i see some things where people are criticizing i try to promote the good and i don't really get a lot from having these battles in public where i'm trying to defend my reputation so i've been a little tuned out of it but you know Uh, the great thing is is that uh they have to read your book oh yeah Uh, i mean hopefully Um, ploy at the end of your article which is great i remember at the end of it you're like (laughs) And by the way, uh, I'm writing yeah. a book about this that's due out in <laughs> April. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I turned it into uh, I tried to turn it into promo, but yeah, I lose track of what, what what's aggregatable. I think teammates having issues with each other that seems to be the thing that that's the most aggregatable for whatever reason. That's the thing people are into. The scene is the best scene of Andre Iguodala and Kevon Looney. So great. <laughs> <laughs> to me, that's the that's the best scene. I mean, <laughs> I, I I haven't seen that aggregated yet. Um, so put people I, in that scene. Put so you're. This is after KD 
uh, after KD has his eight day media, whatever how long it was, the embargo yeah. against the media, the strike against the media, he goes on the rant against you, and then you I gotta up. say, I'm a little annoyed that he told me to grow up just because it's such a good phrase to say to people. And I feel like if I say it now, it's almost referencing that. So it's almost just, it's, it's, it's taken a phrase. It's taken a phrase off the table, but yeah, Katie said grow up and uh, yeah, he had that press conference. And then uh, for the next game, I think it was against the Miami heat after I know it was before the game, Andre Godala basically pulls me to the players lounge where Kevon Looney is and uh, Johnny West, where his executive and uh, a Warriors trainer and tries to tries to compel me as to why I should apologize to Katie to smooth the waters and make everything OK again. And, but and you don't know that up. he's saying about KD. You can only assume that he's referencing KD. Yeah, he's I can like, only he, he will. He just approaches. He says, have you apologized yet, Ethan? <laughs> yeah. And you're like, what? What? Who? You have to play dumb at that point, rather. What are you talking about there, Andre? <laughs> well, Andre's always cryptic. He's not going to over-explain anything. And yeah, he was making this. He was making this pitch to try to get me to do that. And I think it's all very tongue-in-cheek. And Kevon is just cracking up. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah K- Kevon Looney's cracking up about it. And at some point. I think uh, I say to him, how can I apologize? when I, I don't even think I, I did anything wrong. And he said, well, you know, you married like, you know, sometimes you just got to apologize for some. I, I don't know if I can curse on your podcast or not. I'll say stuff, stuff you didn't even do is the pitch Andre Andre gives me. And uh, it, look, the pitch doesn't work. I, 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 I see it as a different per, a difference in perspective where and you know this, Tom, NBA players, because they are so. Um, celebrated from such an early age and everything revolves around them in many ways. Um, They perceive themselves as having this immense power and they do have a lot of power, but then it's, it's always this assumption that you need us, you need us, you need us. And from their perspective, the idea is I need Kevin because Kevin is an all time great and he's going to be in the league for the next seven years and I'm media. And so I need Kevin to like me or I'm, I'm just dead in this town. I'm done in this town. Um, I think that was their perspective on it. Well, and didn't, that, didn't Andre insinuate that a little bit? Just, he did. He said, he's, yeah, and Andre whose is, career, is... Whose career is longer? Yeah, whose career is longer. Um, so you need and, Kevin Durant. Why are you picking battles with Kevin Durant? Exactly, exactly. You need to apologize. But I think it's also a perspective that's informed by their own experience. Because it's not just the idea that players are needed, the better the player, the more they're needed by media. It's also this idea of in my working situation, when Kevin is mad at me, I have to apologize to him because he's this great player. And that is the pecking order of the NBA. So this is what you got to do. We have to do it. We don't like it. You got to shrug and you just got to say you're sorry because to quote Kevin Durant, he's Kevin Durant. And that's how they saw it. But I just don't I don't think it's necessarily true. I certainly didn't need Kevin Durant to like me to write this book. Um, I don't think. Um, the opposite, actually. It's a lot yeah, more fun great. to read. <laughs> yeah. When he's texting lot- you. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot more fun. It's a lot more fun to read. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't I don't think that that I needed him in that way. But I could understand why their perspective was what it was. Yeah, it's it's. 
I think when I was in, it was like 2011, I got a DM from Chris Paul one time. Uh, I wrote a call, I wrote a column ranking him the second best candidate for MVP. Like I had my MVP ballot and I had this like long essay, a love letter to Chris Paul. And I put him number two in my MVP rankings behind LeBron in one year. And I remember just being like, man, if Chris Paul reads this, he's going to love this because I'm just really, I'm, I'm really just, I don't think, I, I don't think many people had him number two. I'll just put it that yeah. way. Yeah. And then I got a DM from Chris Paul and he goes, so you think I flop? <laughs> that is the dynamic right there. And I was like, what? <laughs> and I, I reread what I wrote and Ethan, it's like, 500 words about how great Chris Paul is as a basketball player. And then um, mm-hmm. I, he DMs me and says, do you think I flop? And the reason why he said that is because I had a line that said, even though he flops more than an Adam Sandler, uh, sorry, even though he flops more in Hollywood than an Adam Sandler movie. But um, yeah. Right. It was a take that out. So, then, you got a said, DM, then you got a DM from Adam Sandler. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, <laughs> And I said, even though he flops, da, 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 he's like the, the best guard in the NBA, right? Whatever. And he latched onto that. And there's a, there's a thing that happens in your book, which I relate to a lot. And I think anyone on social media can relate to is you can be showered with praise. Even in this book, I'm sure it's going to be an amazingly reviewed book because it's a great book. And then there's going to be that one review from either someone you respect or don't. doesn't matter. It's going to hit something oh, close to I'm, I'm already, I'm already bracing for it. Like I'm already bracing for it, knowing that the other stuff rolls off your back. And, you know, so yeah, I'm, I, yes. And that's what's going to stick. I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut you off, yeah. but yeah, it's been on my mind. And um, why are we wired this way? I think maybe it's because it's our evolutionary wiring. If you were in a little village hundreds of years ago, you better be attuned when people are turning on you and starting not to like you because you're going to get a rock to the head. I think it's that wiring where, yeah, some praise is good. It's good to get praise. It's wonderful. Yay. You know, it's, it's, it, you did a great job, uh, milling the flower or whatever is going on in this, uh, pre-modern village. I, I don't know, but people not liking you, that's potentially that was a chapter in sapiens, by the way, it, it's probably a chapter in sapiens, by the way, book that Andre Godala loves. Um, well, gossip, but, gossip is like one of our top survival mechanisms is like mm, figuring out where you stand in the community, where you stand yes. in the tribe. Yes. And I mean, if you talk about the evolutionary wiring too, um, there's an aspect of our wiring where we're very status conscious. And if the farmer next door is getting a way better return on his crops, the fact that we're living comfortably, um, that, that doesn't quell the unease we feel about that. And so just scale that up to Twitter world. I mean, you know, we could return to that theme, but yeah, I think that's, that's one of the reasons we get that, that fight or flight kicks in and we get 20 compliments maybe on social media, but the negative comment sticks with us and we can't, we can't escape it. And the analogy that I would make with it is we don't treat it like a buffet where, Oh yeah, I want the I like that over there. Oh, we got some club sandwiches. I love club sandwiches. Oh, tuna fish. Like, ah, I don't really like that. No, it's more we, we, we more consume it in the way we would consume water from a reservoir where if it's 20 percent polluted, the entire experience is bad. And that's that's what what happens on social media. Sulfuric acid. 
sulfuric acid. I wanted to say cat poop, but I think the uh, the book editor said uh, sulfuric acid would be better. Uh, so when you look back at this, the central theme is what? When people are like, eh, I don't know if I really want to read this book, even though this this podcast is, is I'm, I'm already bought it for the five percent of people who are listening to this who have not bought the book. The central theme that the hook that you hope people want to learn more about. Um, I think what people could learn about. Okay, it's hard. It's like I gotta do the elevator pitch because to me, the book is about building the greatest team in an era where the forces are arrayed against that happening. Yes. Where the modern technology makes it insanely difficult to keep it all together, and that's what the book is about. I mean, that's as succinctly as I can put it. There is a sense of inevitability here too, because I remember reading a book, I think it was called Curveball, when I was starting out in my career and learning about probability and statistics and like sabermetrics and baseball stats and why like on-base percentage is better than batting average and all this money ball stuff. There was a study about how if you had like a stadium of people just doing coin flips and there always has to be someone who gets really streaky and has like 50 heads in a row. And that mm. person's going to feel like they are special, but there's always going to be someone who just happens to win at the end because of luck. And in the NBA, uh, there's one team that's always going to win. There's yeah. one team that is always going to come out on top. And we're going to ascribe so much of this uh, what copycatism of the NBA where we're going to say, oh, what did the Warriors have that other teams don't know what was the what was the magic bullet the mag, the secret sauce of the of the Raptors last year, but it's almost like do, do we put too much into winning championships because there's always going to be one there's always going to be I, a championship. I, I would argue I would argue that we do but we need to, I mean there's this stat let's call it a stat nerd uh, revolution of trying to uh, divorce value from the result, um, or to make it more process versus more result oriented. And here's the problem with that is that we, we need this dynamic for the games to have drama. We need to know watching that game when we're watching game seven of the 2016 finals, whoever loses this is going to be mocked. And they're going to be derided there, there and they're going to, to lose historically. Yeah. yeah, there's skin in the game. It's the paraphrasing the Simpsons when Homer is talking about Bart and Lisa playing that hockey game against each other. And you know, one of you, the winner will be showered with praise. The loser will be cursed until my voice is hoarse. Um, it's that it's that dynamic. It, it, it needs to be. It's it's what gets the nerves going, knowing. I mean, if you're a Warriors fan, you're watching uh, you're watching Steph in that 2016 finals. It's it's miserable uh, that what the result was. But it, it's all the emotional investment. If you're a Steph fan of knowing what's going to happen to him and his legacy if he loses and the same thing on the other side with LeBron. So, I, yeah, I would say to you, that yes, we, we judge way too much based on small sample size. Um, and really, there shouldn't be an orders of magnitude difference in credit on the basis of the result in many instances. But if that wasn't the dynamic, then it wouldn't be fun. Well said, Ethan. I have a, one last thing I want to hit before we let you go here um, at the Haber Show. Uh, the sentence on page 64, and it might be the digital 64. I don't know if it's the actual paper 64. But the sentence is, if the news is communicated poorly, you get you could lose the player to resentment, obstinacy, uh, or diffidence, 
depending on personality. Mm. I might have butchered one of those words, but <laughs> resentment, obstinacy, obst- obstinacy. I, I understood what you were saying. It's okay. What is that? How do you pronounce it? <laughs> Obstinacy, I think. I, I don't know. I, I got. I got. When I did the audio book. I got up in my own head. I, I, I mispronounced every French word that I used in this book uh, <laughs> during the audiobook version. I know that much. The progression of those three words, resentment, obstinacy, or diffidence, that's like an LSAT leveling. It, like I, I, yeah. I like I felt pretty good about resentment. I was like, oh, yeah, I know that word. <laughs> obstinacy, I kind of feel like I know what that was. And then diffidence, I'm like, you know what? I have no idea. Yeah, it's just the opposite of confidence. I mean, that, that was you – know, <laughs> That, that that's that's all it is but yeah that's that's a lot of what the coach's job is um you know i've had friends who've sat in on coaches meetings and you would be amazed at how much of their job often is a discussion on how to break bad news to a player and manage their feelings so they don't they don't just lose them that's a lot of what coaches do is to manage the emotions of their players um and it is quite the uphill battle but yeah you would be surprised the other thing that happens at coaches meetings is they they always ask uh, for tonight's game. What's the line? That's the other yes. thing that they talk about. Yes. Have we talked about this before? I feel like we've talked about it before. About the, what's the, the, the gambling, gambling lines were like in coaches' meetings well before like the public. Like the public. Uh, I, I should say like what happens on Twitter uh, before gambling was legalized, and then after, and then we were just like, wait, but coaches talk about co- uh, the spread way more than we think. Yeah, it's like opens the conversation of the game that night. Oh, yeah. It's a great conversation starter because these are the people who are in charge of overcoming expectations. And it's a tangible marker of what the expectation is. So the immediate reaction is they think that we're supposed to win by three. Have they seen our last three games? We're, you know, this is unbelievable. Um, it's doing a Tim Bontemps. It's unbelievable. Um, clowns. So, yeah, it's that's that's something they often talk about in the coaches meetings. It's that and it's probably a bunch of other things. And of course, how do we tell this player he's coming off the bench and have him not just sink into a depression and eat uh, 50 taquitos every night and gain 25 pounds? That's a lot of what your favorite team's coach is doing. One of the characters that I did not expect to see in this book is Bill Parcells. And we're talking about that. He's like Steve Kerr having a meeting with Bill Parcells about how to talk, communicate to players. Um, I have a a list of words here that oh god you have to explain to me oh which no is the I one ho- that you're most disappointed I hope I, know that I, the, I hope I know the words that you use okay, okay let's uh so for let's, those let's who don't hear. know you probably know this people at home reading or listening to this Ethan has like the best vocabulary of any writer in the game so uh, when I'm reading this book uh, I'm circling words that I need to look up okay uh, so no. here we go panopticon Oh, I love that one. Uh, Panopticon is a prison where the guards can see you, but you can't see the guards. It's a great metaphor for our social media experience. Solopsist. Uh, a worldview uh, where you are the center of the world. Uh, I actually got into an argument with David Stern about the uh, about the meaning of that word, so uh, don't quote me on it. Caustically. Oh, just sort of harshly? Erzatz. Uh, substitute. Nom de gore. <laughs> um that one actually might have been something from the editor um I think, oh! yeah i think maybe something you're that's a, that's the french one right that's the yeah. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, that's the. Okay. Uh, okay. I, okay. I think Pass. I, it would, like an assumed an assumed name. Okay. I think. Uh, dragooned. Dragooned. <laughs> to be pulled into something. So why couldn't you just say dragged? <laughs> Ethan, why do you have to go to the twelve dollar word? Why can't you just go with the eight dollar word or, or the two dollar word? Dragged. Well, I, I mean, I think that there's like a, an element. It's not like literally dragged. Like you're getting, you know, you're getting like, it's not like pulled into doing so. I guess you can get dragged. I like Dragoon, though. I like Dragoon. Oh, and in between. Ennui. It's spelled oh, E-N-N-U-I. Sort of a sadness. Amulets. Amulets? Amulets? <laughs> I, don't know what you're, I don't know what word you're saying. A-M-U-L-E-T-S. Wait, A M. Wait, what was it again? A M U L E T S. Oh, uh. <laughs> I mean, like, it's. I'm trying to figure. I like. I know what it means, but I'm trying to figure out what it is. Ah, um, uh, it's like sort of a charm. It's sort of a okay. like a thing you can like. You know. Yeah, like it's like it? sort of a religious charm. I think, okay. maybe, maybe. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, 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 equi- uh, equanimity. Equanimity. <laughs> How did you know? Well, because like I could just tell where you're going with it. I think sort of a, an even keeled, sort of an even keeled manner. Okay, milieu. Uh, just your scene. Erudition. Uh, being well studied. Wav is it Waver? Wavre? O u v r e. Or is this another? Oeuvre. Like oeuvre. Yeah. Is it is, is that what you're trying to put <laughs> I do not do well on my verbal, by the way. For those <laughs> well, you're, who are you're, asking. You're, you're you're a math guy. It's completely uh that's that's completely okay. How do I some of these like it's hard to even explain what it is. Like your like your body of work, your track okay. record. Sartorial. Uh your clothes. Hmm. Uh I think that does it. Um, oh, okay. I, I can't I you know I, I don't I, I am. It's, it's like embarrassing because if you use a word and there is this sort of back and forth process where the word can be replaced by the copy editor. So I am like a little bit I'm like a little bit like, man, no, I really choked on amulet. Like, I know what that word means, but I sounded like a fraud. Like, that's what's going through my head, because, again, thinking about what people think about you, it's not the path to happiness, people. You know what the path of happiness and we'll leave on this note that Steve Kerr's four values, joy, compassion, competitiveness and mindfulness. Ethan hey. Strauss. The only place you can get those four things is in Ethan's book. Uh, And to learn how Steve Kerr came to those four values of coaching. There's so much in this book that, uh, that I learned all those words, (laughs) all those words too. I just learned. Yeah. The thing that I I take away is in Bob Myers press conference after KD got injured, the tearful, tearful press conference. He's one of the most, most understood people is what Bob Myers said of Kevin Durant. And if you want to understand Kevin Durant, you got to read this book because it is not just a look at KD, but also how KD functions in the greater uh, NBA business, NBA world, and how the Warriors fit into that picture. So Ethan, thank you so much for for writing the book uh, and for sharing the details before you wrote it and so that we could uh, help you frame what to think about those details and also uh, coming onto the pod and just uh, riffing with me about it. Anytime, man. All right, that'll do it for this week's episode of the Haber Show podcast. I want to thank Ethan for joining me. I also want to thank him for writing that book. I learned a lot, and not just about 
vocabulary that I need to work on. Uh, so go read The Victory Machine. And if you haven't listened to my previous interview with Shane Battier about guarding Kobe Bryant on this podcast, go listen to that episode. Really good, really insightful. Until next time on The Haber Show.